Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking to the marvellous Megan Beauregard. Megan is the Chief Legal Officer of the energy company Enel North America. Megan gives us her perspective on some of the top GC imperatives that we hear a lot about here. Managing risk, controlling costs, driving efficiency, taking care of my people, DE&I, as well as ESG. Megan is a mother of four kids between 8 and 16, and in an industry which certainly historically hasn't had a great level of diversity, the energy industry, and she gives us her perspective on that too. And we also talk about challenges in legal, and she talks, she raises what she sees, one of the challenges for the legal industry, and it's no surprises here, language learning models like ChatGPT. So please, in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax and enjoy the episode. Megan Beauregard, it's fantastic to have you on the show. I'm so looking forward to this discussion. Uh, Welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jim. And likewise, I'm very, very happy to be here. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned you've heard a few episodes um, of the podcast. That clearly didn't scare you, Megan. So um, that that's a plus. And you know how I usually start? I, I ask for, a, take us through the kind of career arc, Megan, um, of the Megan Beauregard story. Tell us what got you in the law in the first place and tell us a little bit about your career. You know, I was one of those people that like I was always going to be a lawyer. I, I think from a young age, I don't know if it's like I was particularly argumentative or one yep. of the things that, you know, relatives identify as being associated with lawyers, you know, she's going to be a lawyer. And yeah. that resonated with me, I think, as a young child. Um, yep. I had some opportunity to do like, you know, very sort of loosely based mock trials in even as young as like seventh grade, which I loved. And I remember oh, really? like connecting with them in a way that I think was maybe a little, you know, advanced for even, you know, a 12 year old. Um, so that was always my path. I was just always going yep. down that path. Um, and, you know, the chips fell nicely where I was able to kind of continue on that path and started my law career at a, a smaller law firm, which is where I wanted always to work as a young child um in my home state of new hampshire and had you know just a wonderful experience there still say like heaven is going back there at some point to me is that Um, right yeah it was great i mean i love lawyers i loved to be around lawyers i just really loved every element of um of that career Um, and funny enough never having thought of ever leaving the firm um, I, I ultimately did, um, you know, go in-house to Enel, which has been uh, a really, you know, fabulous, really my whole career has been Enel, yep. um, you know, 15 years now. So um, never thought I would move into the energy industry. And, and here I am and just had a great opportunity so long ago to try something new. And, and we'll take take us back to that point. You know, it's 2008, I think, is when yep. you've made the um, move to Enel. Um, never having thought you're going to leave the law firm. Um, 
Uh, and for those listeners out there that might be in the same kind of position, having fantastic time with the law firm, they don't mind being, if they're not shackled to the billable hour, they've got some other kind of um, arrangement where, where they don't mind. But uh, then suddenly it becomes an option. Taking yourself back to that, how did you think about that? And how did you go from not having any th- uh, thought about leaving a law firm to, to taking on this new position? What was you thinking then? So back then I had just had my second baby. So I had a 19 month old and then I was actually on maternity leave and a client of the firm had contacted me and said, Hey, would you, would you yeah. ever want to go in-house? And honestly, the thought had never crossed my mind until wow. that moment. And I said no to him. Cause I was like, well, God, no, like I would never do that. <laughs> um, but then I was like, oh, interesting. I maybe there's maybe there's more out there that I hadn't even thought of. So I kind of just started looking like what are those possibilities? And funny enough, I mean it's gonna sound awful today, there was a Craigslist posting yeah. um, that I found in two thousand and eight yep. um, for, you know, a, a my level at the time lawyer working in power fairly close to where I was living. And it was an Italian-owned company. Now, I had spent um, a semester abroad in in Padova, Italy. And I thought, oh, neat. You know, how cool would it be to actually get an opportunity to sort of blend these two worlds together? But I didn't really trust the fact that I was sending my information over Craigslist. So I think I recalled doing some research, which at the time was pretty hard to do. And Nell was a pretty small presence in the United States then. Yeah. Um, and was able to locate the general counsel's name. And I reached out to him and he and I spoke, you know, a few weeks or maybe a month later and just almost immediately became like the very best of friends and could just tell that we connected and we were going to work well together. So ultimately, that's what brought me in. And he was a champion of my career, I think, while he was here at Anel. Um, and that's really what drew me in was the, the people, wow. you know, the people that were yep. in the group. I knew truly, and they knew this, I knew nothing about power. I had never worked in power, never worked in renewables. They said, you know, can you can you help us with our FERC practice? I was like, what is that? You know, so <laughs> I had to, I Googled a lot of things then. <laughs> what is this acronym? And what is the Federal Power Act? And, you know, I yep. walked around yep. for six months with like an energy law treatise that I would yep. need like in my free time. Um, so I, you know, I had to get up to speed on the subject matter, which is, I think, part of any in-house practice. You're never going to know the whole thing. And I think what you learn right away is that it doesn't really matter what industry you're in. You're still going to get the gamut of issues regardless of your actual, um, practice area. Yep. Yep. And and when you look back now on that, you know, 15 year career to date at NL, what are some of the kind of the standout moments, whether they're kind of pivotal or whether they were crossroad moments. Is there anything that stands out to you as as formative in your career? Well, there were certainly plenty of mistakes that I made that looking back, I'm like, I, I shouldn't have done that. You know, I, and, and most of it had to do with the way I presented something internally. I think yeah. externally, I've always had good guidance. You know, we work with a lot of outside law firms and they're always yeah. usually fantastic. There certainly were like internal discussions where maybe I was a little too brash or aggressive. Um, and that normally are the areas where I'm like, ooh, maybe I should have yep. finessed that a little bit better. 
um, those did form, I think, kind of my collaborative nature now and sort of how I would approach uh, difficult and sticky situations internally at this point. Yeah. Um, and I think, yep. like I said, I did, I do feel, I still feel like I had um, a lot of champions here. Um, you know, the former general counsel was was one of them and then others that I think had led this company at one point or another that really did sort of vest a lot of trust in me that yep. gave me some confidence that I was doing things right. And then you sort of, you know, you start snowballing yourself into, okay, yeah. I know what I'm doing now. Yeah. I mean, when I think about, I mean, those two things, the ability to learn from your own mistakes, they're the, they're the, that's the mm-hmm. best learning because they're the ones that usually hurt the most or, and, well, I don't know about hurt, but kind of make the most impact right. because you feel the consequence. That's number one. And two, having people around you who have a genuine vested interest in making you the best that you can be, whether you call them mentors or sponsors, um, and either seeking them out or having them you know, seek you out, it's such an important part of a su- successful career. And, and it sounds like, Megan, it's, it's made a significant impact on you. It, it definitely has. And I think when you're in any, certainly like multinational company, I'm sure it's true of any company, but there's a, you know, there's a lot of hallways here, right? A lot of twists and turns and, you know, how do I get this done in a way that is going to be well-received you know, internally and externally and takes into consideration a number of different legal regimes and cultures and corporate environments. And that can be something difficult to navigate without help. Um, So those are really important elements. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, So so in a number of discussions, recent discussions there um, with uh, GCs, Megan and Chief Legal Officers, there, there are a number of themes that have come up, and I'm going to run each of those themes sure. past you. I'd love to get your take. We've called them here kind of GC imperatives. You know, when we talk to GCs, what's top of mind for them? And there's five or six that often stand out. I'd love to get your take on each. Uh, I'll mention the first one, managing risk. Um, how do you think about that as an imperative, and how do you think about managing risk? Um, as the chief legal officer at um, at Enel, that is my number one job. I do think managing risk is my number one job, giving the full spectrum of you know risk in in any situation that is presented to legal or even in those that aren't. I have got to talk about that. I've got to give that picture to to the leadership. Tell me about how, let's say, your law firm partners. How do they help? And how do you view them in the context of doing your job managing risk? Yeah, that's a really good one. I, first of all, I, I think for the most part, like I said, the the law firm partners that we have encountered have really been just fantastic and so conscientious about the factors that make Enel concerned. Yeah. Um, I think my job is to make sure that I can parlay those big fears that the company has over to outside counsel so that, you know, even all the stuff that I'm not thinking of, which I'm sure is plenty, is getting yeah. back to me and then is being yeah. fed into the right people. And I think um, I sometimes think that outside counsel takes for granted that I really may not have a great grasp on a particular issue, um, you know, especially if it's a state level issue in a place that I don't typically practice 
or if yep. it implicates, you know, some broader, um, you know, legislative scheme that I wouldn't necessarily think of. Um, we also think of a lot of cross-border issues here because we, we've got such a large international presence. I mean, it has like this trickling effect. Um, yeah. And I think council that can really understand that and and give me that that perspective as well is one of the most valuable things that I can I can get as as a risk manager here. Um, and that tends to be not always, but I think that tends to be firms with big depth that can really give you that full picture. Um, right. And so that's really helpful. Yeah. Um, and. Um... Second priority, which um, we hear a lot about, and I'd love to get your sense on, on whether this is second or whether it's down the down the list. What about controlling costs, particularly in in the current economic environment? Is that an imperative? Is that something which is down the list? Tell me about that. Um, you know, absolutely one of the most important things that we do. Uh, yeah. We are, you know, we are a value added service here, and if it's um, if, if I can't get control of that, then I'm not doing my job. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's not only about controlling costs and finding ways to work with your outside partners in order to get that under control. Um, it's also about making sure that folks internally know how I've done that. Yeah. If I can't demonstrate yeah. the value add that I bring, then I think sometimes I do think there is sometimes a perception that all in-house counsel does is manage outside counsel. Yeah. That's really not true. Yep. Um, yep. You know, if we've got a big transaction going on, we try and, you know, figure out, well, how much would it cost if if, you know, two or three of our lawyers participated in it? Yep. How much would it cost if they didn't? And I try to like have both of those numbers. Well, that, that's I was going to ask yeah. about that. Some strategies, perhaps, that you can share, you know, with, with the audience about um, how you do kind of help, you know, manage and control costs and um, a, a, any particular secret sources that, that that you've got or any particular strategies that you lean into. Sure. I mean, I don't know if it's all that secret anymore. We do a lot of work by RFP. Right. Okay. When we started doing that, when I got to Anel in, in two thousand and eight. It almost felt embarrassing, honestly, as like a, a U.S.-based lawyer, because I don't think a lot of places were doing that. Yeah. And over time, it's really been a very useful tool, I think, for both parties, you know, so that we can manage expectations. We understand what's being asked. We understand yep. what's in that ultimate number. Um, we understand why, if we go outside of it or we go way below it, you know, why that happened. And that's helpful for us in budgeting future years and trying to determine cost on, you know, other transactions or, or issues. Um, and it's helpful, you know, just in maintaining what our expectations are. Yep. Well, you're preaching to the absolute converted <laughs> um, there, Megan. Um, so uh, absolutely being able to upfront um, and it's, I talk about building a muscle for the in-house team where they really think about what's the outcome they're looking to deliver right. and how do they communicate that outcome so that your outside law firm partners can scope their services directed towards that outcome in the shortest possible time and the most cost-effective time. And unless you've actually got a process to, to do that, you know, that, that is a um, any kind of institutionalized, it's hard to build that muscle. But once you do do that, you can, the selection, the, the process that you go through and the way you select and what you look for when you select um, is a lot um, 
a lot more focused mm -hmm. than it might be simply saying, I've got a problem, let's, let's, let's um, send the matter over and let's get the clock ticking on the matter. And no deal starts the way it ends, right? Yeah, correct. So you just, that needs to kind of be, I think, part of the, the culture of the deal team, so to speak, you know, so I think that that's really important driving efficiencies. And we hear about that a lot. Everyone wants to be efficient. I've got to work out how my team and my department is going to be as efficient as possible. What does that mean to you? Um, it do doesn't mean anything. It, it does mean something. And, I, yeah. and I'll and i tell you, I think this is an area of struggle um, for a lot of in-house departments and mine included. Yeah. Um, and I think especially where my team tries to be efficient globally. So we try to find a tool that works in 40 countries. That's really hard. Yeah. Um, and to the point where maybe it's not even always useful. But um, I think the the key with being efficient or one of the keys of being efficient is if, again, if you can't show the metric that you've yeah. demonstrated, it's maybe not quite as useful as it sounds because then you spend time you know, you take away your efficiency from your actual legal time to, to, to showing that you were efficient, which isn't that efficient at the end of the day. Yeah. But I do yeah. think yeah. as time goes on, tools, like, you know, there's a lot of contract software. There's a lot of, yeah. um, you know, I love some of the, the, the new stuff that's coming out that sort of like tells you what you missed, like what didn't you think of. Um, yep. Those are great tools. Um, I always even think just having a good data management system is such a good tool. Um, and it, and I think it's one that, again, like companies tend to struggle with that, like law firms are good at. Law firms have really good data management tools. I don't know that um, like companies from a global sense have sort of achieved that same um, level yeah. of efficiency. But, but, but I think you're absolutely right. Unless you can actually measure it, um, then, uh, th then it just ends up being kind of talk. Right. Um, you've got to be able to, I think you've got to be able to measure and say, when we talk about efficiency, here's what we mean. Right. <laughs> um, and here's how we, we measure that we're getting better at X and Y and, and so forth. So the, and I think that is actually often the hardest thing around efficiency measurement. But I think the focus on making sure you can measure will um, ensure that, um, well, well, provides the incentive to make sure that what you're doing um, is becoming more efficient because if you are struggling to measure it, then um, uh, that the question marks come up. So I think you're absolutely right to point that out. We hear a lot about taking care of my people. That's key. Unless I'm taking, obviously, unless I'm taking care of the in-house people, the in-house team, then they've got plenty of other options and we're not going to deliver. How do you think about taking care of your team? I, I think a lot about taking care of my team. I think my team does. I actually feel a lot of the times like lawyers you know, are like the unsung heroes because non-lawyers don't like to praise lawyers, <laughs> I think in any sense of the word. Yeah. I, th I think I know how much work they are putting into, yeah. you know, issues and deals and transactions and problem solving. And it's, it's a, it's a constant type of thing. And I think a lot of, for a lot of us, it's a labor of love and we, sh yeah. you know, we shouldn't, I know that's, you know, people ask me what my hobby is. It's, I'm like, oh, it's my job, it, which is true, but we, that shouldn't make the company lose sight of the fact yeah, that these are course. really good, good producing people. Um, you know, I think that 
a lot of what lawyers are looking for in scenarios like I'm in, of course, all the, the normal stuff, like, you know, good benefits, well compensated, you know, that kind of stuff, a little collaboration, a little bit of teamwork. I think you lose some of that when you go in-house because you're not the, you know, you're not the yeah. money maker anymore. You're the old yeah. head. Um, and I think finding ways to value the folks that are working with you um, that are sort of beyond the normal benefit package is really an important thing. Um, mental health, I think, is really important. Family time or, or whatever you're doing outside of work. I think COVID taught us like we can be pretty flexible and these people are still going to get their jobs done. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, to me, I try to employ those thoughts when I'm like, okay, how are we going to make sure that everybody's doing okay and, and that they're kind of achieving what they can achieve? Um, and I think if they take, you know, if we take care of them, they take care of us. So yep. have you found, tell me about the last few years, you know, now we're a couple of years out of COVID and so forth. Have you found the last few years more difficult or, or easier or different in it, on this priority about the way we take care of our people? Have you, have, has it changed for you at all? I think it has. I mean, I was one of those people that sort of freaked out when we all went home for COVID, like, oh my God, you know, the whole place is going to fall apart. And of course it didn't anywhere. Yeah. So um, yeah. that's good that, you know, we were proved wrong on that. But, you know, I think there there is a there was a shift to recognizing that, um, you know, again, if you're not in the office from eight to eight, you know, it doesn't yep. mean that you're not productive. It doesn't mean that you're not doing your job. It just means that you can do it, maybe not sitting in front of me. Um, I still want to see you once in a while is kind of how I yep. feel about it. But, um, you know, if you need to go home and let the cat out, yeah, I guess that's okay now. Like it's, life isn't going to yep. end for either one of us. So I think that that's a really good thing that grew out of, out of you know, post COVID years and just the notion that it really is okay to stay home and take care of yourself. I really yeah. don't want, you know, you to come in and, and make folks sick or if you really have something that needs to be dealt with at home. I think that we've we've earned that as a population yeah. that we can do it. So I think that yeah. that's a great a great thing and, to come out of it. And, and no doubt, uh, simply a greater level of trust yeah. um, uh, amongst everyone. Where staying at home didn't actually in the past garner trust. Right. It garnered suspicion. Right. Um, so uh, that that's definitely positive. All right, ESG. Now, of course, coming from an energy company, this is going to be, I'm sure, uh, top of mind for you. But tell me about ESG and, and and how you think about that, and how the legal team at NL thinks about that. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's like our. I feel like it sort of over, encompasses our entire role here. First of all, yep. everything yep. we do is with an aim towards that. And Enel, I think as a company, is constantly talking about ESG and how that is impacting um, the globe um, and how important it is to have, you know, a sustainable future. Um, so that theme overrides every bit of our practice here. I think that we are a company, you know, you look at like the differences, you know, Enel is owned by a, an Italian company. The EU is actually pretty advanced in implementing, yeah. you know, corporate measures and, and legal measures in order to make sure that those types of requirements are written into your charters. The United States isn't quite there yet, um, but companies are there. I mean, what we're seeing is sort of the market kind of driving folks into these areas. So people do business with us because of ESG targets, yeah, you know, and that's a, that's a great, it's actually brought a great dynamic. It's an advantage. Yeah. It's a corporate advantage. Absolutely. Um, 
Well, it's funny. When you can exploit that kind of corporate advantage, um, then that can only be um, an overall positive, not only to NL, but basically to the broader economic, social um, environment um, that it works in. So to be able to lead with that as a as an uh, essentially a corporate um, uh, uh, competitive edge, it's got to be. It, it feels it's good. Be what yeah. Trying. yeah, it's it's cool. Good. It feels good. Yeah. It's interesting work. You know, it kind of uh, brings the legal team, I think, into doing some things that are a little bit better than maybe just you know thinking about like where are we going to put this win least you know, today, how are we going to write it? So it's kind of an interesting element of the job for sure. Diversity, equity and inclusion. I suppose the place it has uh, for you and your legal team and perhaps the impact that it's made on you um, in your career, um, especially now, I think you've you've told me, four kids between eight and 16. Mm -hmm. And unlike me, Megan, you didn't have a wife full time at home raising the children. How do you say that? That is something very close to my heart, um, DE&I efforts, for a number of different reasons. I think if I think about the beginning of my career, you know, law firms, not necessarily the most friendly Conducive. Place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For a young mother or, you know, a young woman even, not a lot of senior female leadership, I think, across the country in law. Um, and, and I think, yeah. you know, women see that. Like, why isn't there... Why is that not happening? And I think as, you know, we progress in our careers and for those of us that have decided to have families like I have, that answer becomes clear to you. It can be really difficult to kind of do both Um, and did contribute, I think, in some ways, as I said, to to my jump to in-house. Not to say that I didn't, you know, work plenty of all-nighters and, and, you know, did I, you know, I have this memory of my children carving pumpkins while I was negotiating a a deal that needed to be closed and they were young. So they were like sort of throwing pumpkin seeds all over the place. And I just kind of let it happen. But, <laughs> but, you know, one of those things that is emblazoned in your mind, it yeah. became apparent to me moving into the energy field. You know, it's not that different. There's not a ton of women at the table. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't know if the men think about it the way the women do, but I notice if I walk into a room and I'm the yeah. only female, I don't know that it's on anybody else's mind. And I think it's yeah. a pressure we we can put on ourselves. So I think my goal as I've moved throughout my career is not being afraid to say, hey, guys, you know, there's 25 men at this table and me. Do you think, you know, as things move forward, can we try to yeah. diversify this a little bit? And I've tried to take the collaborative approach. Like, I don't want to be in anyone's face. And I don't think I don't think that even works to say, like, you have to hire yeah. a female. I don't want to be the female that gets hired under that situation yeah. anyway. But I definitely learned to sort of understand that some of that was on, on me. Like, I was sort of making that notation. But also that it was okay to sort of talk about it. Like, you know, hey, your team's all men. Great. They're wonderful when you have an opening, like let's think about maybe getting some diversity. And of course there's no, not even a a question anymore that diverse teams are better. I mean, everyone just has kind of accepted that, but I think it is hard to move a company to a place where you've got better diversity. Um, It's something you have to think about and talk about and implement every day. It's not just enough to kind of talk about it once or say, Oh, Hey, we really like diversity. And then, you know, hire all white men. And it has to infiltrate all the parts of an organization, you know, 
not just on teams, but who is the organization putting up in front of the public? Is that like a white male slate? It tends to be. I don't think that there is an understanding or a full recognition of how good it is for an organization to have a little bit more diversity on those types of forward-facing people. So I've tried here, I'm the executive sponsor of our Women's Energy Network um, internally. I'm a founding member of the Women's Energy Network of Northern New England externally. Um, I've spoken with the UN Global Compact on these issues. I really do try to be a voice um, because there's not a ton of female leadership, certainly in law, in this industry and in this industry in general. Yeah. So I think it is one of the most important things that we do. I have a very diverse team. You know, I want to practice what I'm preaching to. I have a lot of females on my team. I have people of color. I sort of have the whole gamut and it's great and they're fantastic. And I think that's a big reason why. And I think we need to entice more leaders in this space to think about um, building a team. It's not just about necessarily hiring the smartest individual person you can. Like, do you already have that really smart person? What else is going to like round them out? Yeah. What what else is, um, uh, what kind of composition um, is going to be the best for the organization? And what are the messages? You're absolutely right. What what do you want to be uh, corporate facing out there? So, you know, facing the world. Um, It's hugely important. Even though I think in our small company here, the amount of times I've heard how important it is to have, let's say, our GC, Michelle, as the face of the organisation rather than me, it makes a huge impact. Right. And that no, that's at a very small scale. So I've um, got no doubt, Megan, you're absolutely right um, at a bigger scale. But it does sound like the energy industry has got a long way to go. It sounds like it's early in the journey. I think the energy industry does a really good job of talking about it. And I think I think the it's the follow through everywhere that is the yeah. hard part because that takes yeah. time and it takes you know, we have to think, like I said, you have to think about it all the time. And, and you also, you know, you need to kind of have a plan. And if you don't have one, it's hard to make these goals come true and, and to achieve them without knowing how you're going to get there. Talk about the challenges that you see over the coming years for legal, both from a, you know, a CLO perspective and perhaps more broadly. And what keeps you up at night? You know, interesting, I feel like a hot topic right now is like the whole concept of chat GPT. Yeah, how about that? Yeah, you know, (laughs) and and this is kind of back on the table. It was a few years ago. And I think lawyers kind of took a deep breath because they were like, oh, we got over that AI challenge. And here it is again. Um, and, And how do we continue to convince, you know, the business like, hey, we're more than just an app. Because um, you could ask ChatGPT and, you know, maybe you'd get a good answer. And so I, that's something that I think is on my mind because there is certainly a decision to be made about do you just want to sort of take the, the you know, the, the electronic risk and whatever that says is, is the way it's going to be. And does AI get to that point where it can sort of give you, yeah. you know, the 20-year experience of a lawyer in the industry? I guess probably is the answer at some point, but I, I still think... I still feel, of course, that, you know, that's not the future of, of this for law. I do think lawyers traditionally have been adverse to technology. You know, we're always like the slower ones to get up to speed on useful tools and learning them and implementing them. Um, so I think that, you know, the next phase of, of GCs need to make sure that they're understanding and educating not only their teams, but again, like the business uh, about how to use those things and why they're important and how they can be helpful. 
it's really interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I did a, um, a blog or a newsletter recently where I talked about, um, uh, is it the case that um, a chat GPT or other language learning models will end up preparing essentially the first draft of everything, mm-hmm. of an advice, of a contract, of contract documents, whatever it might be, and so that all of that generative work then just gets kind of essentially vetted um, by the expert. Um, is that the way we're heading? Because if that is the way we're heading, then you can see um, the language learning models getting better and better so that the first draft becomes close to a second, close to a final. Um, and then there's just a tiny sliver of work that the expert human lawyer actually does which ends up being a a checking function is that our future heaven forbid even like from a judgment perspective like could you replace you know the the decision making authority into you know into a a, an app you know you could do we want to i think is the question you know i think it's the human element that um, I think why a lot of people become lawyers and go into law, it, it's yeah. sort of a social element and what's right versus what what's wrong. And, and you know, there's a moral aspect of it, too. So it's yeah. an interesting time, I think, to be it, reviewing it it. it. it really is, because even that kind of what we call the human element, the, the judgment, the moral, presumably if you have enough data that you've learned on, you will learn that bit, well, question. That's the question. Do you learn right. that bit too? and Or do you learn parts of that and how much is left? That is, that's the big question. Well, I don't think it's just the legal industry. I think it's exactly. it much broader. Exactly, um, yeah. But, um, uh, but yep, uh, I think it's it's <laughs> fair to call that out, Megan, as, um, a, a, as certainly a challenge um, in the industry. All right, so advice that you'd give to your 25-year-old self you know, I think the my, my favorite piece of advice came to me at a particularly difficult moment in my career when I was sort of butting heads with someone. And it's loosely based on, you know, Darwin, frankly. Yeah. But, you know, you've got to adapt. You've yeah. got to find a different way to approach a problem. If, if, you're, if you're smart, strong way... Um, it isn't working, which, yep. you know, I think as lawyers, we think, oh, we're smart and I'm, you know, I'm opinionated. I'm going to be able to convince. Uh, and I'm, I'm right. Yeah. And so I'm definitely I'm, right, yeah, obviously. Um, and so I think sort of, uh, you know, again, finessing your perspective and how you're presenting information and adapting to maybe how the person is receiving the information yep. ultimately can get you there a lot easier and with a little bit less mental stress than yeah. just bulldozing through. It's great advice, Megan, because we always look at things and problems from our own lens and our own perspective. And when we do that, we're naturally right. <laughs> and so we're naturally convincing once we put our view forward. But being able to, it's a real skill, but being able to actually put, you know, whether you're walking in someone else's shoes or just trying to understand their perspective and really understand and really listen. You know, we talk, you might have heard me say before, when we rarely listen, we're just ready, we're just preparing our answer or our response. (laughs) Um, But that skill, the listening and then being able to tailor to someone's perspective, you learn that early in your career, you can 
save yourself heartache and get get very far. Absolutely. Last question. Other than chat GPT, what else keeps you up? Uh, well, and other than four kids between eight <laughs> and 16. <laughs> they do keep me up at night. Um, you know, I think, I think the things that really concern me are what, you know, what have I missed? What didn't I, you know, what didn't I get to today? Um, you know, and I think that that's one of those things that, you know, especially I think in-house lawyers, especially are sort of like always harried, right? You're always, you're dealing with a thousand issues. You have five minutes for each one. Did I respond to everybody I needed to respond to? Did I read that entire contract or did I just get halfway through? You know, did I fully understand this issue when it was being presented to me or was I multitasking so much that I kind of missed it? I do think the the complete in-depth look is yeah. something that, um, you know, I wish I, I focused more on. So far, it hasn't had a real significant effect. It seems like I've gotten to everything, but that is sort of what I wake yeah. up and you know, send a quick email like at 4 a.m. and say, okay, like, you know, I don't know if I finished this thought, but I wanted you to have it. Um, and I think that that sort of, um, like I said, like not really having, like when you love your job and it's constantly yeah. brewing inside of you, that sort of makes you better at it at the end of the day, even though it might seem like you're a little crazy about it. Yeah, but. yeah. Megan, it sounds like you might be a little bit more like me. Sometimes when I'm laying awake, there at night I've, I've played i'm playing the whole day's events mm. through my head the whole day is just kind of repeating <laughs> through my head and the decisions i've made and um uh and whether they were right and the responses i and, and all of that do you do that do you end up playing a lot of the events of the day um, I, I think i do um and i think you know combined with what you were saying before you know having a large family having a busy job sometimes yep. i have to just sort of remember what happened today? Like, where did the, where did the day go? Like, how did I finally end up in bed at, you know, yeah. whatever time? Um, and so I do think that sometimes you have to just kind of walk through what went on, both work and home in order to keep yourself a little aligned and sane yeah. and, um, you know, able to sort of even plan for the next day. Like, hey, what do yeah. I have to do tomorrow now? Like, how is today's events going to impact tomorrow? So, yeah. Megan Beauregard, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I think the podcast episodes will be fantastic and the audience um, will get a real kick out of meeting you. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me. Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.